Before we get into today's show, I wanted to remind you that there is a new Twitter account for the podcast at Cinema Ticket Pod. Once again, that's at Cinema Ticket Pod. Go follow the account for updates on new episodes and new special guests, including a director of one of my favorite movies. I'm really excited about that. So without further ado, here's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with Jeremy Warner Show producer and co-host, Austin Berklin. Welcome into a brand new episode of Cinema Ticket, the movie podcast all about the movie going experience. And today we have a very cool episode for you. Uh, joined, uh, joining me today is Austin Berklin. Uh, he's a co-host of the Jeremy Warner Show all the way from Illinois, which is pretty cool. Uh, we're able to do this in this time. Austin, how are you doing, man? I'm doing well. How about yourself, Zach? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, school's out, so just kind of easing into summer and what that looks like and everything like that. Uh, thanks for thanks for your time and being willing to do this. I can't wait to talk about the movie we have planned. And the movie we're talking about today is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. And I'm really excited to get into that with you today. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited. Uh, Quentin Tarantino always has major cinema releases. It's not like there's a Quentin Tarantino movie that's like, oh, wait, Quentin Tarantino made a movie. It's always yeah. a blasted out marketing campaign and that's what makes him so unique you don't get that all the time anymore like yes you have it with avengers films but that's mostly a bunch of different directors a bunch of different writers but for him to constantly produce that marketing stream like steven spielberg spielberg back in the 80s it's so um unique and it makes everything feel like bigger than it is him and nolan are pretty much the only two that have that kind of um, mystique about them. Yeah, you always know when a Quentin Tarantino movie is on, and like you said with the Avengers movies, uh, you, there's not really a, a consistent tone, or you recognize immediately who that director is or uh, who's working on it. But with Tarantino, it's always apparent pretty much from the first second the movie starts. And I personally just started watching uh, Quentin Tarantino movies, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, so for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, Austin, did you see this movie at home, or did you get to see it in theaters? I saw it at home. I did as well. I rewatched it yesterday. Uh, it was my second watch. Uh, and I'm going to be honest, I didn't love it the first time around, but I enjoyed it uh, a lot more on the, on the second time around. And we'll get into those reasons why in just a minute. But I do want to ask you, what are some of your favorite uh, movie snacks, whether uh, that's just in your home or in movie theaters or whatever? What do you like to munch on while you're watching movies? I am a massive movie theater popcorn um, fan and it's that's what's killing me most about the COVID-19 situation is that I miss that taste like uh, I tweeted at somebody a few days ago I said you could give me a movie theater machine and I would still not be able to recreate that movie theater popcorn taste so at home I've just been eating my meals kind of with the movie mm -hmm. so it hasn't been like a consistent snack but um, I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with some fudge brownie M&Ms, which, by the way, might be better than regular M&Ms. <laughs> there you go. So uh, where do you where do you like to sit? Where that's at home? What's your what's your at home movie watching at home, environment like? At home, I am a recliner guy. Um, and then at movie theaters, though, I like sitting in the first row of where the elevated seats really start. Um, mm. And I like putting my feet up right on the railing 
um, of the handicap seat area. That's if there's not a handicapped person sitting in front of me. Um, but if there isn't, then I will use that as my footrest and then I will uh, enjoy the film with a little bit of a reclined position because movie theaters in Champagne don't have the uh, uh, laid back seats with the elevated footrests and everything. So I have to um, get creative in terms of getting comfortable for the two hour flick or three hour flick or whatever it is. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because here in Knoxville, Tennessee, where I live, uh, the it's the regional corporate headquarters for Regal Cinemas. So all the Regal Cinemas around here are decked out with the chairs and have like fancy foods and all that kind of stuff. So I was going to ask what the theaters in uh, Champaign are like because I've never seen a movie in Champaign. I have in uh, kind of the middle of nowhere in Illinois where some of my extended family lives, but don't know what the, the Champaign uh, movie theater experience is like. Yeah, it's the typical routine. You uh, go in, and this is new about a couple years ago. This is how like far back Champagne is a little bit, that you are now starting to pick your seats for every movie, um, which it was only in IMAX in Savoy and only in the Big D Theater um, in Champagne. So that's been rather interesting is like having the assigned seating at movie theaters. And uh, I kind of like it, actually, because it incentivizes you to buy your tickets a little bit early at the, uh, on your app or on a website. So I like being able to know where I'm going to sit in the movie instead of walking in, not knowing it. And then you might be in the very front row to the very side of a huge blockbuster release, which can be frustrating. Yeah. And do you have anybody specifically that you just love to watch movies with? Um, most of the time I actually go to movies by myself. I like underrated. Yes. I, I like having, the ability to just completely engross myself in the story. I like not having to explain what happened to somebody who happens to go to the restroom during the film. And of course you don't have to share the popcorn, but Mm -hmm. I I do enjoy going to movies as well with other people. It's not like I'm a major recluse or anything, but um, I definitely like going to films with uh, friends and uh, just having fun with it. And then talking about it right after the film, that's, very underrated part of it if uh, for a guy like me who goes to movies almost exclusively by myself yeah i worked at a movie theater for about a year and got free tickets we got two free tickets a day which was pretty sweet uh but i would often go by myself just either if i worked the late shift i would go see one like in the early afternoons and then just start work right after the movie was over or whatever uh, so I'm definitely a fan of the going by yourself to the movies thing i think it's an underrated thing that when theaters reopen I think more people should give a shot because I think it's really cool. Hey, I mean, I think a lot of people will give it a shot because just yeah. saying like you might be sitting six seats away from your mm-hmm. uh, buddy or your girlfriend anyway. So uh, why not uh, go by yourself after this is all over with? Yeah, for sure. All right, let's get into the movie itself. Once again, we're talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. How many times have you seen this movie, Austin? Uh, I've only seen it once. And it was a movie where I was like, man, I, I really feel like this could be um, a love letter to Hollywood. And it really, really was. So it was, it was fun watching it that one time. I'm definitely going to revisit it too. Yeah, I got to see it twice. So I saw it once uh, last fall while I was uh, in college, actually. And I got to watch it again yesterday. And for me, the second watch was far more enjoyable. The first time, I was kind of like waiting for us to get to something and like waiting for the shoe to drop or waiting 
just for the story to take me somewhere. And it really doesn't. And I think that's kind of why it works. It's kind of just like a, I've heard people describe it as a hangout movie where a bunch of people that you really like to see on screen uh, have great chemistry and just kind of talk with each other and just hang out for a couple hours. And it's really fun to watch. But the first time I didn't know that's what was going to be the first time I watched it. So I was kind of just waiting for it. And then the third act does give it to you. uh, But that's not until like two and a half hours in. So the first time I watched it, didn't know what I was getting into. Uh, and was kind of waiting for something to happen. The second time, since I knew what was going to happen and knew that's what the movie was, I had a lot more fun with it and was able to just kind of uh, sit back, relax, and and enjoy it. And I've yeah. only seen like four Tarantino movies, so this is still kind of new to me as well. Yeah, this was a, a way different than a lot of other Quentin Tarantino films because Quentin Tarantino films, as odd as they can be, they still follow the basic uh, plot line where there's the climax where there's a problem where um, you meet this one character and that's who you follow throughout the entire film. This one, it feels like it wasn't such a character study as it was a time and period study. Like what was the late 1960s, the early 1970s really like in Hollywood? And you just see the characters living in that environment. So that's what I thought was really unique was that the setting was almost the main character in this film. Yeah, the Hollywood backdrop is really cool. And especially as someone, I've been to California one time. Uh, I went to Ventura, California. And that Ventura, California actually gets a mention in this movie. So that was pretty cool. I was like, yeah, I've been there. Uh, but I don't, I've really never been out West for an extended period of time. So for me, uh, it was cool to see stuff I didn't really know about Hollywood. But also I think for the people who lived it, uh, like maybe Tarantino did, um, like some of the people involved with the movie and the Academy voters especially, uh, this probably felt a lot more nostalgic and brought a lot of uh, nostalgic feelings for them when they watched it. Yeah, like you saw the cinema bowl and then you saw the neon signs of all those major restaurants of the area um, back in uh, late 60s LA. And it just felt like the city was alive and breathing at, in the film. And I really appreciate that him bringing the setting to life a little bit and making you feel like, you know what, I could live here like, or mm-hmm. this is real to me. And that's really a difficulty for our new filmmakers and Quentin Tarantino mastered that really, really well. Yeah. So like I said, just a moment ago, I just started watching Quentin Tarantino films. I've watched Pulp Fiction Uh, the two Kill Bill movies, and now this one. And that's not necessarily uh, in any purposeful order that I've watched those in. It's just kind of the way the movies have crossed my my vision and the way I've been able to watch them via streaming services or whatever. Um, So Django Unchained and The Hateful Eight will be up next because those are both on Netflix, I believe. So I'll be able to watch those. But one thing about Quentin Tarantino that I knew before watching any of these movies or at least heard people talk about, is Tarantino's foot fetish. Now, <laughs> this is something I didn't know what to expect when I started watching his movies. So I watched Kill Bill Volume 1. was the first Tarantino movie I ever saw. And there is a full minute shot of uh, Uma Thurman's foot just on screen for like a whole minute. And I was like, I kind of see what these people are getting at. And then right. now that I'm aware of it, every time there's a foot on screen, I notice it. like it's at the forefront of my mind, whether it should be or not. Since I know that knew that before going in, every time I see a foot on screen, I'm like, man, this dude has a foot fetish. 
but have you have you noticed any of that kind of stuff or aware of that dialogue going on about his foot fetish yeah like uh, you definitely see women in particularly and occasionally a, a male have their foot just up, up against the dashboard when they're riding in a car yeah. like that's a subtle little nod to uh that foot fetish that he has like um so yeah you definitely pick up on it just a little bit more like like not everyone sits with their foot on the dashboard there's people that just sit regularly seatbelt on like come on man like but every single time somebody was in a car especially a female that was uh the seating situation that they were in (laughs) yep always always uh so i wanted to ask you what what your expectations for this going in i kind of mentioned mine a little mine a little bit and how tarantino kind of subverted my expectations a little bit but what were your expectations going in and and did they deliver yeah, I, I thought it was going to be a little bit more, like, grotesque because mm. that's what Tar- Quentin Tarantino's style was. I was kept waiting on, like, all right, when is that massive bloody murder scene going to happen, like, in the middle of the film? I was always waiting on, all right, is there going to be just some grotesque nudity? Like, not that that's a bad thing or a good thing, whatever your feelings mm. are about that, like, uh, to your podcast listeners, but there was just not that situation go on in the film and I, you just kept waiting for it and waiting for it but this was the most mature quentin tarantino film i've seen and i think it was because of his genuine love of hollywood and yeah. so that really subverted my expectations about this film was i just kept waiting on that grotesque moment and it finally does come at the very end but in the middle of the film it just was straight story straight story straight story and i was I was kind of in shock, but I, I kept waiting for it. I kept waiting for that big time moment to come. Yeah, I think when, in a movie that uh, has DiCaprio and Pitt and Margot Robbie and Tarantino's writing, directing it, your your expectations are definitely pretty high. And um, and for me, they were probably too high the first time I watched it, just because of all the talent that was involved with it. Um, but at the same time, I think they Tarantino delivered on the movie he set out to make, and I always think that's that's the most important thing for a filmmaker is to make the movie that you want to make. And for me, that felt, I felt that come across the screen, um, that this was the story Tarantino wanted to tell everything he wanted in the movie is in here. Um, maybe there's like a four hour cut somewhere, but for me, it felt like this, this was the movie that uh, Tarantino set out to make. And that's what I was expecting. And I got it. So for me, uh, my expectations were met in that sense. Uh, but narratively, like I said a minute ago, um, wasn't expecting uh, the storytelling to be how it was. Um, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. It just kind of caught me off guard. Yeah, watching this movie, you think of Quentin Tarantino and what his major interests are. Number one, and always will be, is old-time Hollywood. And it feels like every movie he made before this was like the appetizer, the entree, the side dish to um, what his career is. Like He made the movies that he had to make to give him the nutrients to sustain him like uh inglorious bastards is like the state of his career and and everything this movie once upon a time in hollywood it was quentin tarantino's big old bowl of ice cream for sure where he was like i'm just eating this because i enjoyed it and i I know since you like what i make you're gonna like this as well so i think that that's what his goal was he was just like i'm gonna do what i'm gonna do here because this is what i genuinely love and he ate that bowl of ice cream, cherries on top, chocolate syrup on top. It was just that complete love for Hollywood and love for old time Hollywood showing through. Yeah, for sure. 
And when this movie came out, um, and once again, I had never seen a Tarantino movie before this one came out. Um, and there seemed to be some backlash on Twitter and social media for how uh, Tarantino wrote the characters or the, really the portrayals, because these are real people of Sharon Tate and Bruce Lee. And since I had never seen, I didn't see the movie in theaters. I didn't really know what anyone was talking about. I couldn't really judge until I saw the movie. Um, I personally don't know Sharon Tate or Bruce Lee very well to comment on whether or not he did a good job in their writing their portrayals. But I know this is also a lot of coming from Tarantino's, I, I don't want to say imagination, but how just his brain and how he works. And so for me, they felt like Tarantino characters and whether or not that's the accurate historical portrayal or not. I don't know. I can't answer that. Um, but for me, they worked in, the, in this movie for what they were. Yeah, I mean, Quentin Tarantino always has a way of changing history and how you view people or view events. Like, uh, it, we can't really say, did, did Quentin Tarantino judge Hitler like that way? Like, yeah. I mean, this, this is what he does. He takes uh, historical people and makes them in his imagination or from his own perspective of people he knows that dealt with them, especially this one in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where... He, he has reference points. He has older people who are around um, Bruce Lee and were around the other character, Sharon Tate. And it feels like that's kind of who he thought they were. Like Bruce Lee was very arrogant, according to Quentin Tarantino. And um, so I, I think that kind of rubbed the Lee family the wrong way. And I can't wait for next week's uh, 30 for 30 on ESPN mm -hmm. about Bruce Lee. So mm -hmm. it kind of frame the documentary says about Bruce Lee's arrogance versus what happened um, in the movie once upon a time in Hollywood. So I think a guy with that skill might be a little bit arrogant in, in karate and, and uh, martial arts, of course. And, um, but I think what really sucked out to the Lee family was him being defeated in that dream sequence, which yeah. we can go about in a little bit later on, I guess, but that, that dream sequence, I might've been an overreaction by Brad Pitt's character there like because that just shows what he thinks of his own self um so I, I think it was fair in terms of bruce lee's character portrayal and sharon tate i, I mean showcasing her innocence was really well done um when her when she's just in the movie theater feet and all watching uh, that movie of herself i think that showcased uh, that she was just innocent about what the hollywood experience was and i can't really view her um, in too negative a way. So I don't know if uh, people should really be upset about Sharon Tate's uh, portrayal in the film. So did you know anything about Sharon Tate and the Manson murders before watching? And I, how did that impact your viewing experience either way? Like just a hair. Like you hear that, you see the headline, like that was kind of my um, knowledge of the event. I didn't have any like background info until I Wikipedia it after watching uh, the movie. Um, but it, it didn't really affect how I watched it because again, whenever I said Quentin Tarantino likes to uh, turn history on its head a little bit, that's kind of what he did in this movie. And that's just a Quentin Tarantino staple whenever you're uh, writing and directing a period piece. Yeah. There's a scene uh, in the movie where Roman Polanski and Margot Robbie are together and he walks out of the house and there's a bearded guy there talking to them and they don't ever tell you his name. And he just walks away and he's on screen for like 30 seconds. And I was like, okay, that has to be somebody like that. Kid, like they, he has to be saying something. Cause I don't know any, 
before watching this, I didn't know anything about what happened to Sharon Tate. I knew that she she died, and I knew some of that. I didn't know it was connected to Manson at all. Um, so I didn't know any of that going in. And then after he kept dropping pretty obvious hints for anyone who knows the story, but for me, they were pretty subtle because I had no idea what was going on. After mm-hmm. I Googled all that, uh, the second watch was really nice for me after I kind of knew where everything was going with that story and all of the ranch and everything that was involved with that. Um, after I was able to know that the second watch helped me a lot to like the film a lot more. Cause I really feel like I knew what was happening and was what was going to happen to these characters. Um, but I feel like for someone maybe like me who didn't know anything about Sharon Tate or the Manson murders, some of the, I don't want to say Easter eggs cause it's a serial killer and no one likes serial killers, but some of those hints that are dropped throughout um, of what's, what's going to happen to Sharon Tate ultimately um, maybe went over a lot of people's heads who had never heard of the event or the Manson murders or anything like that. Uh, and I don't know how Tarantino could have done that any better, but for me that would have helped my first viewing at least the second viewing was fine. But for me who didn't know anything about it, the first viewing, I would have liked to know a little more about that story before going in, but. Yeah, that fine that final scene. If you didn't know anything about Sharon Tate, you're just being like, "Oh, um, he's talking to his neighbor." Like yeah, that's yeah. not really a big deal. Like, but if you know like what ends up happening with the Manson family and Sharon Tate, her speaking after those Manson family members were killed by Brad Pitt's character and the mm-hmm. dog, then you really realize, "Oh my, they saved yeah. her life!" Like, "Oh my gosh!" Like. So that's just the inside knowledge that you have to have watching this film. But um, I, I think this is what lends the movie a great mm-hmm. rewatchable for Bill Simmons and the ringer yeah. here. Um, so yeah, that leads it to become a really great rewatchable film. So I, I love all the subtle hints of old time Hollywood, whether it's uh, movies or TV shows that really happened um, in the 1960s and 1970s. So uh, it, that that first watch though if you don't know it it can be really frustrating especially the end payoff yeah and uh for me i i just had never learned about manson or tate or the manson family like i said on the on the second rewatch being able to put that all together and like you said realize that they probably just saved her life from what was about to happen uh makes that kind of i don't want to say revisionist history but makes it all the more meaningful the ending to the movie and and what happened there so this movie was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, won two of them. And uh, Brad Pitt was, was one of the winners. And I wanted to ask you who you thought gave the better performance in this movie, the Oscar winner, Brad Pitt, or Leo, who didn't win an Oscar for it, but I think is pretty good too. I would go with Brad Pitt because I felt like Leonardo DiCaprio was just going into the old Hollywood that he has known and loved and studied for his entire life. So I think Brad Pitt had to be that cocky guy. Like he had Mm. to have that charisma and that's kind of tough to do on screen sometimes. No. And also with the weird past of his character and killing his wife, like at some point, like whether that be rumor or true in the movie, like, uh, I mean, that is just, I think the depths of his character lent itself a little bit further than um, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Dalton, where he was just like, yeah, I'm old Hollywood. I, I want to become the best uh, actor in the world. Like there, there wasn't that much 
depth in there. So I think I would go with Brad Pitt's character. Yeah, on my uh, Letterboxd review, which uh, Letterboxd is an app, like a social media app for movie fans, essentially. And on my Letterboxd review of the movie I put up for my rewatch yesterday, I said that uh, Leo DiCaprio kind of sounds like John Gruden in this movie, like with his accent. Yes. (laughs) So I put at the end of my review, knock on wood if you're with me. And the next time you watch it, I don't think you'll be able to get it out of your head. Just imagining John Gruden uh, playing Rick Dalton in this movie would be pretty fantastic. Let me tell you, man, I'm a bounty hunter. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty spot on. I didn't really think about it until about an hour and a half through the movie. And I was like, you kind of sound like John Gruden a little bit. I'd like to see that. Uh, yeah, that, that is funny. Maybe we need to see Leonardo DiCaprio be, be John Gruden in a, in a biopic after he wins the Super Bowl with the Las Vegas Raiders or something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how much you pay attention to Oscars or not, but uh, this was nominated for Best Picture. Parasite won. Um, in my opinion, Parasite deserved to win, but I don't know if you had any thoughts on on that Best Picture award, if you were a big Once Upon a Time in Hollywood fan and were rooting for it to win, or if you were satisfied with Parasite winning ultimately. Yeah, I mean, I definitely saw why Parasite was as popular as it was, because it dissected dissected class around the world it dissected some serious topics and and just the general tone of it was really unique with the occasional comedy comedy moments by the um, poor family mm-hmm. I thought that once upon a time in Hollywood might have stole it um, because of all the old Hollywood throwbacks mm-hmm. knowing what um, the actors and the directors who are really old and white uh, most yeah. of the most of the voters like i know they changed it last year to incorporate some youth and some diversity in there but i thought that old guard of hollywood would look at it like oh we need to vote for this because this is our the story of our lives right here but um yeah i, I can't really complain that parasite won because i definitely see why it was so popular in the first place yeah for sure and uh with once upon a time in Hollywood, you know, being set in Hollywood and being that throwback feel. I also felt like 2016's La La Land had a similar feel to it, and yep. it it ended up not winning either. And well, so I don't wonder ask if the uh, presenters, if they, if it yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, that's true. They won it for about two minutes, and then uh, they did not have it any longer. But but yeah, the, once they didn't give it to La La Land, and then now this, I just wonder if future old Hollywood movies. Um, how they actually do fare um, in the best picture uh, category just because the last two that kind of had a throwback Hollywood feel that celebrated LA and Hollywood didn't end up winning and it didn't work so uh, I just thought that was that was pretty interesting just the last two movies like that just haven't won and they went to equally deserving movies in Moonlight and Parasite so yeah I wonder if it was just the coincidence of being the wrong year nominated because Mm -hmm. moonlight did showcase the gay african-american perspective Mm -hmm. in life and that hasn't been showcased too much in hollywood so i really wonder if it was just a general year where there was like another period piece where there was just another um movie that showcased journalism but i don't know like just a weird unique uh um occupation i wonder if that was the year that it would win, but just that it had so many unique perspectives in Parasite and Moonlight that those two films uh, ultimately bit the dust in terms of winning that best picture um, film. Yeah. And on this podcast, we just love to talk about the movie going experience. And part of that 
uh, is scenes that stay with you and scenes that you remember for a long time. So Austin, do you have a favorite scene or sequence from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I mean, that ending sequence, like it was very Tarantino-like where mm-hmm. you saw the blood, you saw the uh, gore of it, the dog biting um, every part of text. Like that was uh, pretty intense uh, and a scene that I will remember for a long time. But I, I think another scene was just um, like Brad Pitt's non-fear of this cult um, when yeah. his tire gets uh, blown out by one of the cult members. I, I think that scene sticks out to me because it's like, this is a, a a Hollywood stuntman, like the coolest guy in town, just not being fearful over anything. Like, and this is a cult that's really, really odd and you don't know what they could do to you. I, I think that scene sticks out to me um, pretty, like just showcases what Brad Pitt's acting is and how much like that he just is able to, be the cool guy because there's not a lot of cool guys in Hollywood really anymore. It's well, it's, it's diverse, which is nice. It's not just this jock club anymore, but um, I think Brad Pitt is one of the last uh, of of his type of just being a cool guy in Hollywood. And that scene stuck out to me. Yeah. For me, it's very similar to your Brad Pitt scene there. Just him, especially on rewatch him being on that ranch um, and just kind of, nonchalantly like walking about it and kind of putting together the pieces that this isn't what everyone's telling me it is and I probably need to get out of here but I need to investigate a little bit that was just really cool just him his calm cool demeanor throughout the whole thing Uh, another scene that comes to mind for me and it's actually a little more emotional um, it's when Leo Brick Dalton's character is talking to the the young actress before like they're doing rehearsals or they're, they're just sitting in their actors chairs reading scripts and whatnot and he gets choked up about how he feels useless and um, where his career's headed and everything like that. And that was just really one of the more intimate moments of the movie for me, getting to see inside uh, Rick Dalton's brain and, and, and his heart ultimately and how he feels about where he's at in life. And just the little girl's response to him and their back and forth is just really cool. Yeah, I I really kind of want to see Quentin Tarantino use kid actors a little bit more after seeing that scene where it's like Quentin Tarantino films are very, very adult. So I kind of want to see like Quentin Tarantino's take on like a stranger things or something, seeing how he wrote that line, those lines for that girl and, and directing that performance out of her. That was pretty, um, pretty great to see. Um, And another scene that really stuck out to me was Sharon Tate watching uh, the film because it showcases the innocence of Hollywood, like that, people get get into acting sometimes just for the fun of it. Like, Mm -hmm. and she just loved the experience of seeing herself on the, on the big screen and, and going through her own lines and and body movements while sitting in that movie theater seat, like that showcased so much innocence of what Hollywood ultimately should be, but it just isn't because you have so much ego, like Dalton's character or, just some bad apples with whether that be Brad Pitt's characters. So I love seeing the innocence of what acting in Hollywood can be as well. Yeah. We have a lot of actors today who don't like to watch the movies they're in and don't like to see themselves perform. I remember pretty recently when Adam driver was on a radio show um, and the host made him mad by making him watch a scene from the movie and he didn't want to see it and doesn't like watching himself on screen. And 
that's fine for Adam Driver. I'm sure that, I mean, that's what he needs to do for him. But it was cool to kind of see someone who's excited to see themselves on screen and the innocence of that and the excitement of going to the theater to see a movie that you're in. And then also the uh, the ticket lady at the front wouldn't let her in into the theater and ended up taking a picture together before she goes in. It was just really cool uh, to see that side of it and how uh, probably a lot of us would be if we ever were in a movie. <laughs> We'd probably right. be there to see it and be there front row with our feet up on the chairs or whatever and, and taking it in. Like she wasn't mad that the ticket lady didn't know who she was. She wasn't upset about um, the not being famous part. She was just so excited to see her own film because this is what her hobby is. And I feel like in today or even back then, um, if somebody, if you were in a movie, even a small, small part and, um, the ticket lady was like, nah, I don't know you. You're, you're, I, what character are you in this film? Like, there would be like TMZ footage of of this actor or actress just going insane on this ticket lady. But she was like, no. And she explained exactly who she was and just went about it and got her picture with the manager and all that. So I really appreciated that scene a lot. Yeah, and on the flip side of things, is there anything in Once Upon a Time, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that you would change or? wish was different or are you just pretty satisfied with the experience overall um i wish there were like a few like i know it's kind of crazy but i kind of wish there were a few more throwbacks of like um like what life was like outside of hollywood just to add that juxtaposition of these hollywood people's problems versus like the problems of real america back in the late 60s and early 70s so that's probably um would probably add another layer in the film just to showcase like, yes, these are big time problems for Dalton, but not in terms of what the actual American issue is um, back in that era. So that's probably the one thing that I would change might add some depth to um, the setting, even as good as the setting already is. Yeah. uh, When I think about this movie, the first time I watched it, I mean, it's two hours and 45 minutes. So it's a long it's a long movie, and the first time I watched it, I really did feel the length of it. Um, I kind of like had watched like half of it and went and ate dinner and then came back and watched the next half. Uh, but the second time I watched it, um, again, with some of the more knowledge I had about the situations of the movie, I didn't really feel the time as much, to be honest. Like It was just a fun two hours and 45 minutes of my day. And now it's one of those movies I feel like I can play like in the background while I'm doing something else. Like it's one of those for me now that I can just flip on whenever um, and, and enjoy whatever scene is on screen. Uh, but for me, like I said earlier, my big thing with it is I wish it was just a little more upfront about the Charles Manson stuff for people who had no idea what was happening and don't right. know how big of a deal that third act is and the, the resolution of the movie. Um, because if you don't know the situation, that pretty much just goes over your head and you missed kind of the gravity of what Brad Pitt's character and Rick Dalton just did. Yeah. I I personally liked in terms of visuals of this film, Mm -hmm. I loved the, how colorful it was. Like you look at um, Quentin Tarantino films in the past, like they're very dark and gloomy films. Like hateful eight's very dark and gloomy. Django has moments where he's wearing a bright, brightly colored outfit at one point like and pulp fiction the same way kill bill has the yellow jacket of Mm -hmm. course but it's it's very dark and and gloomy this was the exact opposite i was surprised to see the bright vivid colors of 
of the outfits occasionally. So I, I really appreciated the cinematography of this film as well. Yeah, it's, it's really good stuff. So we talked uh, in the Twitter DMs about your Quentin Tarantino viewing experience and how many movies you've seen or haven't seen. And you're pretty well versed in the Tarantino world. So where does Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, rank for you in terms of Quentin Tarantino movies? I would say around the middle of the pack, like it, where I, I might have it slightly above the Kill Bills. Um, I have not seen Jackie Brown yet. Um, that's the one gap in my viewing of um, Quentin Tarantino films. But I think I would put it right behind like a Django Unchained, a Hateful Eight, um, and Inglorious Bastards. Uh, I think it's in just that next tier below. Uh, and of course, Pulp Fiction ahead of it as well. So I'd probably have it with like Reservoir Dogs as kind of that tier of Quentin Tarantino film. Yeah. Uh... Pulp Fiction is probably the best Tarantino movie I've watched. Um, and so, like I said, I've watched four. So Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I like the Kill Bills a lot. And I kind of group them together. Like it's hard for me to separate them because when I watched them, I watched the first one. And then I watched the second one pretty much immediately after that. And right. so for me, they kind of just flow together in my mind. Like it's hard for me to separate <laughs> one or the other. Um, so Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is probably my least favorite, but I still like it a lot. Um, I probably just need to watch more Tarantino before I put together an official ranking of anything. But uh, I like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood quite a bit, even though on the first watch, I didn't care for it too much. And I think that's kind of the beauty of Quentin Tarantino as well, is his a lot of his movies hold up really well on rewatches. Yeah, and I think that showcases what a good filmmaker does, because... You don't want a movie that just is like, oh, you, you watch it once, you you watched it all. Like you want to add some depth and some characters and some character motivations. They have to rewatch multiple times because that showcases the art and the depth of the story and the depth of each character. So I think re, I think Quentin Tarantino does an excellent job of showcasing that you can watch the movie more than once pick up more character motivations and pick up more of those Easter eggs, uh, um, as you put it uh, earlier on um, in the show. So the big question for you as a Tarantino guy, is the next one his last one? Or do you think he's going to continue to do more stuff? I think Quentin Tarantino is ultimately like a pro wrestler, um, <laughs> like where he's going to be like, all right, I'm retired. Um, thank you all. It was wonderful. I, have my love letter and once upon a time to Hollywood. Thank you all so much. And then five years after his retirement, he's going to be like, he's going to be sitting in a recliner one day and thinking of an idea. And that idea is going to consume him until he puts pen to paper and gets the concept down and then ultimately makes another film. So I think that's uh, where Quentin Tarantino is going to be because a guy that creative doesn't just, I know he's done in the past, but I, I don't think ultimately in his head he's going to just put a cap on it and say it's done. What would you like Tarantino's last movie to be? Whether it be a genre or um, maybe you want to see him work with somebody he hasn't before uh, or anything like that? I, I, I kind of I, – I could go two ways with this. Like One, maybe in the, into the science fiction world because I know he's talked about like – doing an adult version of Star Trek or, or something similar to that. So I think that would be really intriguing where he can get off earth a little bit and 
uh, dive into some more cosmic realms of storytelling. Um, but also after seeing that scene with the, with the eight-year-old girl, I, I think that he would do excellent with a piece on, on kids living life. Like, I know that's not really his point of view, but I feel like he does a great job of storytelling where he can get, um, get the most out of um, the kids' performances and make it actually a really believable film about what youth is like in America. Yeah, I would, I would love, as a, as a big sci-fi fan, I would love to see him tackle something like that, maybe a space Western of some sort, or just tackle something off-world. Uh, I mean, I love what Denis Villeneuve is doing with Arrival and Blade Runner 2049, and would love to see Tarantino tackle something like that in sci-fi that has a lot to say and can also still be Tarantino's classic, you know, violence and his, his over-the-top style of it. Um, I would love to see that. Yeah, I mean, imagine like the green blood or whatever just shooting across the screen or even onto yeah. the camera lens itself, kind of like a Django Unchained scene or Inglorious Bastards, but in space, that would be really in, um, uh, really fun to see. And I feel like there's kind of a void in like adults, uh, st- adult space stories because you do have some kid elements in a lot of the Star Trek and, of course, Star Wars. So. I would like to see maybe like a not raunchy is the right word, but more like mature content with like the actual results of war of like, yeah, death is awful. Like you don't just gloss over it kind of like what Star Wars does occasionally in their films. Yeah. And are there any uh, producers or co-hosts over at the Jeremy Warner show who are big Tarantino guys? Um, Mike Carpenter, who was uh, the host of Tan Carp. He likes Quentin Tarantino and Jeremy is a, very very big quentin tarantino fan um I, I his number one film of all time i believe is inglorious bastards gotcha gotcha cool uh well austin man thanks so much for coming on uh cinema ticket it's been awesome uh to chat with you about once upon a time in hollywood and quentin tarantino and and all that good stuff where can people find you on twitter at twitter i am at ab 1132 and uh i want to thank you for having me this was really fun to uh watch a movie with a more critical eye and um i enjoyed the conversation about it uh you do great work zach hey thanks a bunch uh would love to have you back anytime uh keep rocking it over there on the jeremy warner show uh and doing your thing be sure to follow like subscribe this podcast uh wherever you get it whether that's spotify or apple podcasts uh, or wherever you get your podcast will be there. Uh, be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter, a brand new Twitter account just launched for that. And we've hit a couple hundred followers pretty quick. So we'd love to have you over there over at cinema ticket pod, and we'll see you next time. And there are some very, very special guests coming in the future that you won't want to miss. And Austin, once again, thanks for coming, man. Have a good one, Zach. I'm not going to